Hey, everybody. <laughs> I am so excited to be here at our Ridge campus today and even more excited to have all of you joining us, whether you're doing that in person at our Banks Mill or West Campus or even if you're just connecting online. I'm glad you're here wherever here happens to be for you today. And as you can see, we are continuing to wade into this difficult and messy topic of faith in politics. And the reason we're wading into this minefield is not because we're gluttons for punishment or, you know, we just love a good controversial topic. We're doing this because as our country and the people around us continue to overemphasize the importance of politics in our lives, it can be so easy for us as believers to kind of get swept up into that hype. And if we're not careful, we can start seeing the people and circumstances around us through the red or blue lenses of our political ideologies instead of looking at them through the lens of the gospel to which we were called. And so our goal in this series is to help us figure out how to thread that needle between living out our faith in our politics, but without ending up putting our faith in our politics, to help us figure out how as Christians, as the church, we can let our voices be heard in the culture, but without ending up sounding and acting and reacting like everybody else. You've heard me say throughout this series that the purpose of the church and therefore by extension our purpose as Christ followers, we are not called to win elections. We are not even called to win the culture war. We are called to win people to Jesus and we do that best church when we live, love, act, and maybe most importantly, when we react different from everyone else around us. Because as our cult country becomes more divided, more politically polarized, and especially as we head into the fall and what I'm sure is going to be another contentious election cycle, it's so important, church, that we become even more intentional in the way we talk to, talk about, and interact with people who are on the other side of the political aisle. Now, political and social and culture divisions, they're not new to the church. In fact, these kind of, of things have always been in the church. I mean, go all the way back to the very first followers of Jesus, the, the apostles, these 12 men that Jesus called to come and start and continue this mission of the church. Within Jesus' small group of 12 disciples, you had two who were political zealots, which was an extreme right-wing Jewish group that was committed to the violent overthrow of the Roman government. Two, I mean, these are storm the capital right-wing people. And then also on the other end of the spectrum, you have Matthew, who was a, a deeply embedded bureaucrat 
within the Roman government. I mean, you got the deep stater and the riot at the Capitol Police in the same small group that Jesus called together. So I'm pretty sure if Jesus wanted his church to all have the same political ideology, he would have called a different group of people to start that church, right? And you don't have to read far into the New Testament to see these political and cultural divisions within the church. In fact, think about this, within 20 years of the resurrection, so 20 short years after the resurrection of Jesus, the early church in Jerusalem almost tore itself apart arguing over cultural differences between Jews and Gentiles. I mean, think about every letter that I see in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul writes to churches that he started and then would write to encourage them. And almost every one of them, he has to address these divisions, these non-essential to the gospel divisions that exist within the church. My point is this, disagreement, is unavoidable. Division is a choice. And we make that choice based on how we choose to see and to react to people who are different than us. In fact, that's why some of Jesus' final words to his disciples before he returned to heaven was about how they were to connect with each other over what united them, not based on what divided them. Look at what Jesus says, John 13. A new command I give you, not 10 commands, a new command, one command I give you, love one another. And then Jesus spells out what that love looks like. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then notice what he says, by this, by this Christ-like love, everyone will know that you are my followers, my learners, my disciples. Now remember, Jesus is giving this command to a group of guys who had almost nothing in common. In fact, were even opposite ends of the political, cultural, and social spectrum. And by the way, this love that Jesus calls them to is not some touchy-feely, soft, emotional, kumbaya, you know, go along to get along love. It is a love built on truth and honesty and sacrifice. A love that would cost Jesus his life on a cross. So how do you do that? How do you truly love people the way Jesus loved us, especially when they're so dramatically different. To love the way Jesus tells us to love each other requires us to do what almost nobody else in our culture is willing to do. And that is to move towards people who are different, not further away. It means to lean in to people who are different and to stop shoving each other away. I mean, unless you've been under a rock, you've probably noticed in the last 10 years how our leaders, our political parties, and our media are driving us all further and further apart. We're being pushed to the extremes in our political thoughts, right? And and now the, the middle has been vacated. 
In fact, politically speaking, to be a moderate is like a cuss word, right? On either side, if you're on the left or the right, anybody who's a moderate, anybody who moves towards the middle, anybody who's willing to work with others is considered a weak, spineless traitor to their country or their party or their ideology. And unfortunately, when the church starts taking its cues from our political parties and our media rather than our Savior, we miss out on the very mission that God has called us to. Now, I know when you think about moving towards the middle, it sounds like we're saying compromise your beliefs. Water down the truth. To to meet in the messy middle, to move towards the messy middle means you need to let go of your convictions or water down the truth of God's word. But I'm saying no, that's not what you have to do. You don't have to compromise your convictions in the middle, but you do need to seek to be, seek to understand before seeking to be understood. Sorry, could you say that again? Siri's answering me. You don't have to water down the truth of God's word to move into the messy middle. But you got to stop lobbing those Facebook grenades at people on the other side. You have to be willing to listen, to connect, to, to hear their story, to get to know them so that you can understand why they think, why they act, why they believe the way they do. I hear this, oh gosh, I can't tell you how many times I hear this from Christians. I just can't see how a Christian could vote that way. I just can't imagine how somebody could say they're a Christian and be a part of that party. I don't understand how they could do that. Well, listen, if you don't understand something about somebody, there's something you don't understand about them. All political beliefs are based on life experiences, perspective, how you were raised, the reality of the world in which you grew up in. That's where those ideologies come from. And so I believe, church, that our best, most effective ministry takes place in the messy middle. And so that's what I want us to talk about today. How do do you do that? How do you minister in the messy middle? And there's probably no better example of that than Paul, a guy we call the Apostle Paul, because from the moment Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he would spend the rest of his life sharing the good news of the gospel with groups of people with which he had zero in common. People whose lifestyles and beliefs were an affront to every core belief Paul ever had. And yet Paul was one of the most effective at ministering in that messy middle. And the good news for us is he writes out his strategy for doing this in his first letter to the church at Corinth. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible or Bible app, we have some message notes available. And we also now have message notes available online, electronic notes. You can get those right off of your Cedar Creek Church app. 
Uh, or if you don't have the app, one, you need to download the app so you can stay connected with everything Cedar Creek. But you can also just go to a browser and put in cedarcreekchurch.net slash notes. You'll get an electronic copy of the notes so you can follow along. You can actually write your own notes in that. And here's what's really cool. At the end of the message when you're done, you can just email those notes to yourself. They'll be right there in your inbox and you can study them and work with them and use them all during the week. But as we unpack these four simple but powerful verses from Paul, we see four keys to ministering in the messy middle. So let's jump in. Number one, the first thing I got to do is maintain the right posture. I have to maintain the right posture. You don't have to compromise your beliefs to minister in the messy middle, but you probably got to change your posture. Because for most of us, our posture with people who have a different set of political beliefs, a different set of values, or a different lifestyle, our posture is almost always either defensiveness or pride. We're defensive. We, we want to win the argument. We want to come out on top. Or at the very least, we don't want to be corrupted by those people, whichever side or your, those people. Interestingly, Paul took the exact opposite posture with people different from him. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone. I looked up that word in the Greek, everyone. You know what it means? Everyone. It means everybody. It means those who have a different political ideology. It's those who have a different belief system. It's even those who have a different lifestyle from the one I believe is right. Paul says, I've, I've subjugated myself. I have made them more important to me. Now, we read that word slave, and it's just a figurative concept to us. But in Paul's day, slavery was a daily reality for everybody. Everybody. Over half the people in the Roman Empire were slaves, and everybody in the Roman Empire was in danger of becoming a slave because slavery was not ethnically based, it was economically based. It's the crops didn't come in, now I'm in slavery. It's my husband died and I don't have any grown children to take care of me, now I'm in slavery. It could happen to anyone. Think Gladiator, the movie. You know what I'm talking about? Remember General uh, Maximus? You know, he's like a hero, Roman general. And in two days, he becomes a slave all because of a few circumstances. That was everyone's reality. And so Paul says, look, that thing you're so scared of happening to you, that loss of control, I'm intentionally making myself that way. Why? Why, Paul? Why would anybody do that? Well, look at the rest of the verse. To win as many as possible. See, because Paul wasn't in it to win it for himself, nor was he in it to win it for his side, he was able to win people to Jesus. And guess where Paul learned this strategy? Guess who his mentor was in this making himself a slave? Well, look at Philippians 2, 7. It says he, talking about Jesus, he gave up his divine privileges. 
He took the humble position of a slave. Now I want you to do this. I want you to think about the person in your world right now who is the most politically or culturally different from you. Who's that person that anytime a topic comes up, you just butt heads? In fact, you maybe you even got to the place now where just we don't talk politics anymore. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in your family, somebody in your home group, maybe somebody in your uh, campus congregation. Who is that for you? Who is that person that is most different politically and culturally from you? You, you got them in your head there? Now ask yourself this question. What would taking the posture of a slave with them look like? What would it look like for you to take the posture of a slave with that person? Maybe it's asking them what they think instead of telling them what they ought to think. Maybe it's being willing to listen non-judgmentally to their story instead of telling them all the reasons the mistakes they made have led them to the painful consequences that they're in. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I do know this. Our posture with people on the other side of the aisle will be directly proportional to our effectiveness in ministering to those people who are different from us. Starts with the posture. I got to go into this uh, interaction, into this conversation, into this relationship with the right posture. But Paul says it doesn't stop there. I also have to watch my tone. I have to watch my tone, the tone with which I say things because it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. You've probably heard that before and you probably heard it from your spouse. Yes. I see the elbows going, all right? It's, it's not what you're saying to the kids, it's how you're saying. It's not what you're saying to me, honey, it's how you're saying it. Tone matters, right? Here's an example. I can say, well, that is great. Or I can say, well, that's great. Same words, right? Totally different meanings because the tone is different. Here's what we need to understand, church. My heart is most often revealed not in the words I say, but the tone with which I say them. And here's the hard thing. It is almost impossible to recognize your own tone, right? We, we don't realize that we're saying it that way. We don't realize what we're really, really feeling inside is coming out by the way we're saying those nice words to the people around it. Something my poor wife, Terry, has tried to help me with for over 40 years. Honey, are you mad with the kids? Because what you said, it sounded like you're mad with the kids. I'm not mad with the kids. I'm not mad with the kids. Honey, I think you're mad, right? We don't recognize it in ourselves. And when we do get called on it, we just dismiss it. We become defensive. No, that's not really what I'm feeling. That's not really what I'm thinking. Yes, our tone reveals our heart. And while Paul doesn't directly address this issue of tone in this particular passage, he does address it in this letter 
to the church at Corinth. Just a few chapters down, in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, those famous love words that we read at weddings, Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. See, Paul says, it's not just the words, it's the heart behind those words. And our heart, our words, and the tone that we use almost always truly reveals what's in our heart. And just by the way, side note, bonus material, that is why text, emails, and social media posts are the weakest forms of communication because there's no tone in them it's just words and that's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 18 that when we're talking about difficult issues when we're we're having difficult or hard conversations with others we need to do those in person and face to face because tone matters look I know you think that Facebook post is telling those people on the other side why they're stupid, why what they believe is wrong. I know you think that Facebook post is giving the truth and telling it like it is, but it's not. It's not changing anybody. Oh, it may make you feel better after you click post and you can go, yeah, got that off my chest. It may be better for you, but it is damaging for the kingdom of God. And so church, we need to react, respond, and communicate different from the world around us. I love how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Oh man, what a great verse for these times. What a great verse to filter our text, our emails, our conversations, our social media with. Ask yourself, is what I'm saying, and more importantly, is the way that I'm saying it filled with hope? And is it shared with gentleness and respect? Or is it all about winning and having it my way? It's messy in the middle. Paul says that's where we belong. But to be effective, I have to maintain the right posture. I've got to watch my tone. And then number three, Paul says I've got to take the right approach. I've got to take the right approach. Because we tend to approach people on the other side of political opinions with an immediate desire to stake out our position, to make sure we go into this thing knowing that they know what we stand for. We go in with pride and puffed up chest and say, this is what I know to be right. I am taking a stand for the Lord. And yet Paul, who in my opinion is the strongest, boldest, most effective Christ follower 
who ever lived, the greatest defender of the gospel and the church, takes the exact opposite approach. And he spells this out in verses 20 through 22, verses that most people consider the heart of this passage. He lays out this approach he takes with people who are different. So let's unpack this just a little bit because there's a lot here. Beginning with verse 20, Paul says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew. Push Paul's right there. I'm like, wait a minute. What do you mean you became like a Jew? Paul, you're like the most Jewish Jew I've ever known. What do you mean to the Jews, I became like a Jew? Well, actually, Paul was not what was considered a first century Jew. He was a Hebrew from Tarsus, a Hebrew from a Greek culture. The term Jews in the first century was used specifically for a certain group of people who lived in the region of Judea where the temple in Jerusalem was, and they were unique. They had their own little form of temple worship. They were a unique sect of Jews. And so Paul says to them, when I'm up at the temple, when I'm around those folks who worship that way, I'm like them. I try to become like them. And then look at what else he goes on to say. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. Now what is he talking about Christ's law? The Torah, the Old Testament? No, he's talking about the law that Christ gave that we just started with. Love one another the way I have loved you. One another, one another, the way I have one another you. He said, that's the only law I'm under. And then finally he says, to the weak, I became weak. Now, I just have to tell you, i got to be gut level honest with you. When I read this, it kind of comes off as like double speak, like, polit- like talking out of both sides of his mouth. And I'm like, come on, Paul, dude, pick a side. Take a stand. Waffle, 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 Paul. You're just, you're like a chameleon. You just, you want to get along with whoever you're around. So you just pretend like you're like them. And that's what it sounds like until you understand this phrase that Paul uses that says, I become like. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To those under the law, I become like them. That word does not mean pretend to be something you're not. It means to identify with others, to try to understand what their world and life is like. See, Paul didn't have fluid convictions, but Paul had a fluid approach to the people around them. In fact, next week in our message, we're going to look through the book of Acts at several interactions that Paul has with people and cultures that he had nothing in common with, and we'll see this lived out in his approach. But the reason, the reason Paul was willing to walk into that messy middle of people who were politically, culturally different than him The reason he was willing to enter that messy middle with people who had a completely different worldview, he spells it out to us in the last part of verse 22. 
Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all means possible, I might save some. See, Paul was in it to win it, but he was looking to win something much bigger than a religious fight, a political fight, or a culture war. He was in it to win it for the kingdom and for his king. And then finally, Paul says to to minister in the messy middle, I have to remember my mission. I have to remember my mission because when I lose sight of the mission to which I've been called or when I allow my mission in life to become about me, my political preferences, my, my comfort zone, I'll end up fighting the wrong fight against the wrong enemy. And that's why Paul closes this passage by reminding us of the big why behind all of these things that he does in the messy middle. Paul says, I do all of this, all of these things for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. That blessed life you're looking for, that hope for a better future that you're desperate for, that peace you desire that seems to be so hard to find, it's not going to be found in some socialistic utopia in the future, nor is it going to be found in taking our nation back to some perceived golden era. It's going to be found in a king and a kingdom that are eternal. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I I thank you for the clarity of your word. But in all honesty, I have to recognize that this is way harder to do outside this morning than it is sitting in here. So easy to hear these words, to jot down some notes and go, "Mm, that's good, oh, that's so true. But you told us, Jesus, that when we are just hearers of the word and not doers, that we're just hypocrites. That we're building our house, our lives, our families, our nation on shifting sand. So Jesus, here is where we need you. We can't do this on our own. In our own strength, our own ability, our own passions and intellect, we'll just go back to being like everybody else. So today, Father, as we gather as a church, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out, to move among us, to give us the courage and the strength to love others the way that you loved us. We need you, Jesus. Move among your people, your church, your family called Cedar Creek Church right now. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.